0: Several years ago, a Minnesota state legislator floated the idea of eliminating metered ramps and express lanes. Why? Well, because he said so many people cheat that it would be better to do away with them than to leave law-abiding citizens suffering while the guilty went unpunished. And I found myself agreeing with him. Not actually his solution, but with his sense of outrage. Because every time I see someone cheating on a metered ramp, my own sense of justice is offended. It makes me angry, actually a lot angrier than it should. And that's because it just doesn't seem fair. Now, we all face injustice. In fact, we even tell our children that life isn't fair. And yet we know that's not the way it's supposed to be. In the back of our minds, we know that life should be fair. And yet it isn't. Now, many of life's injustices are trivial, like someone driving alone in the express lane and getting away with it. But not all of them. In fact, there are local, national, and global injustices that just offend us. The murder of George Floyd, the Syrian refugee crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. And then there are the deeply personal injustices that we face every day. These are the ones that strike closer to home. The daily agony of working for a tyrannical boss, the emotional pain and suffering that come at the hands of an abusive spouse, and the financial hardship that comes when someone cheats us out of hard-earned money. These kinds of injustices are not trivial. They make us angry, and they cause us to question God. And we're not alone. They not only trouble us, but they troubled a man who lived a very long time ago. His name was Habakkuk, and he was at least as troubled as we are by injustice. In the book of the Bible that bears his name, he gives us insight into the problem of injustice that he found directly from God. Now we don't know much about Habakkuk except that he was in the midst of a personal struggle. He was a righteous man who cared deeply about the things that God cared about. And he was having trouble reconciling the idea that God was good with the evil and injustice that he saw all around him. Now unlike other prophets, Habakkuk didn't go to the temple and stand up and give a speech. He went straight to God. Twice he complained to God, and twice God responded. Now his first complaint is at the very beginning of chapter one, beginning with verse two, and he says this, "'How long, Lord, must I cry for help, "'but you do not listen? "'Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? "'Why do you make me look at injustice? "'Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? "'Destruction and violence are before me. "'There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you will not listen. Habakkuk is outraged at what he sees because Israel has become violent, unjust, and corrupt. People are blatantly disobeying the law. And worse, this isn't happening in some distant land, it's happening in his own backyard, in Israel itself. So Habakkuk asks God a hard question. Why do you tolerate evil and injustice? And then he makes a demand of God. He says, do something. Now Habakkuk believed that God was powerful, that God cared and wanted justice. And yet when he looked around, all he saw was evil. So he asked, how long do we have to wait? One of the most challenging objections to Christian faith is the problem of evil and suffering. How can a loving God allow suffering in this world? Some have told me that this is the reason that they've rejected Christian faith. That said, I've found that it's often harder for those who do believe to accept suffering. Why? Well, because when we suffer, it calls into question our understanding of God. That's because it can be, at times, easier for those who don't believe to accept it because they just don't expect that life will make sense. But Habakkuk believes And he struggles to reconcile the evil and injustice around him with the righteous, loving, powerful God he believes in. Now, after Habakkuk is finished with his complaint, God answers him. Here's how he responds, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1. God says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty people whose own strength is their God. I want you first to notice that in in God's response to Habakkuk, he doesn't scold him. He doesn't say, who are you to question me? Instead, he answers him. I think the point for us here is that God is not afraid of the difficult, honest, and hard questions that we want to ask him. In fact, he welcomes them. Now in God's answer, the first part of the answer is exactly what Habakkuk is expecting, that God is aware of the injustice and he's promising to judge the nation. But then he says something quite different. He says that he's going to judge them by sending the Babylonians to do the job. Now just a bit of background here, the Babylonians were the 6th century BC's bad boys. They were wicked, ruthless, violent, and greatly feared. They were so arrogant and godless that they believed that their military and political strength made them godlike. So Habakkuk is really beyond shocked. He is undeeply deeply offended. So again he complains to God. He's pleased that God has a plan to punish evil and bring justice, but he's mystified by God's methods. God was planning to use the Babylonians, a nation more wicked and brutal than Israel. It would be the equivalent today of President Assad of Syria, being the one chosen by God to judge us for our shortcomings. So again, Habakkuk goes back to God with a complaint. Verse 13, he says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? At this point, Habakkuk is beside himself. He simply cannot understand how God can use a nation more wicked than them to do their justice. How can you tolerate such wicked people, he says? They're more corrupt, more violent, more brutal than any other nation on earth. How can you, a holy God, allow such people to do your work? Again, he demands an answer. Although in chapter two, verse one, he says it in an interesting way. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Now there's still an edge in what Habakkuk says when he speaks to God, but he also indicates that he is willing to wait for God's response. So are you willing to wait as Habakkuk does? When you have a question for God, are you willing to bring it to him and then wait for him to respond? Are you willing to accept what he says and then act on what he asks you to do? Well, how does God respond to Habakkuk's second complaint? Well, in verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, and it certainly will come and will not delay. So Habakkuk, God says, justice is on the way. Although Habakkuk isn't told exactly when or exactly how it will end. He's just assured that justice will come and God will decide when. And then God adds to this one more comment. He says, see, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. God tells Habakkuk to wait for justice, and then he says the righteous will live by their faith or their faithfulness. So justice may come slowly, but it will come. And in the meantime, he says, trust me, the Babylonians will be held accountable. They will be punished and the righteous rewarded, and in the meantime, be faithful to God. And the same is true for us today. Sometimes it seems like we have to wait forever for justice. But the consistent message of the Bible is that everyone is accountable for their actions. The justice will be done, if not now, in the future. And with that, Habakkuk's conversation with God is over. But something's different now. He has a new perspective on what's going on. And so he prays in chapter three, a prayer that summarizes all that he has learned from his conversation with God. In verse two, he begins this way. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. And in our time, make them known. And in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk starts by remembering all of the great things that God has done in the past. And then he makes a request. He says, could you repeat them in our day? In other words, could you do something like that again? And then at the end of verse 2, Habakkuk says something very important. He asks God, in your wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk understands that God is both a God of justice and also a God of mercy. And he says, please, show us mercy. The love of God for us is so strong that even when he is ignored, deserted, and rejected, he's patient and merciful. And Habakkuk asks God to show his mercy even if it means that he needs to wait for justice. Much of the rest of the chapter is a review of what God has done for them in the past. And this list increases Habakkuk's confidence. His faith, his trust in God grows. And his response is one of fear and awe. In verse 16 he says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. But his fear quickly gives way to trust, and he expresses confidence that God will act. And at the end of verse 16 he says, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And then as if his confidence hasn't been expressed strongly enough, Habakkuk tells this to God. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my savior. What Habakkuk says here is amazing. He tells God that even if the world is falling apart, even if faced with natural disaster and economic collapse, even if his own life still sucks, he will still trust God. In fact, he says, I will do more than trust. I will rejoice in the Lord. And then he closes his prayer this way. He says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Habakkuk said this about 15 years before anything that God predicted happened. It was over 60 years before the nation of Babylon would be destroyed. In fact, it's likely that by the time God answered Habakkuk's prayer in full, he'd been dead for years. And yet he still rejoices. Habakkuk was changed by his encounter with God. Did he get the answers that he was looking for? Well, yes and no. Certainly the answers he got weren't what he was expecting but what he got was a glimpse of God. He got a perspective and it forever changed him. His encounter left him in awe of God. He was reminded of God's actions in the past and he learned that God loves this world more than we do and that one day God would deal with the evil and injustice. And then in one of the most moving affirmations of faith in all the Bible, he tells God that even if there is no visible sign of his action anywhere in the world, Yet he will still rejoice in the Lord, in God my Savior. The Lord, he said, is my strength. When Habakkuk started this conversation with God, he was angry. And then as God first spoke, he became even angrier. He expressed doubts that God could even do what needed to be done. He wondered if God cared. But by the end, he was changed. And in this, Habakkuk becomes a shining example of what it looks to live by faith. Now you may be discouraged today. Perhaps you're waiting on God for justice. Maybe you need God's deliverance. If Habakkuk were with us today, he would sympathize because he knew how dark and chaotic the world in our lives can be. But he would also remind us that God really does care. That just as he came through in the past, he will come through for us in the future. And in the meantime, he tells us to live by faith and put our trust in God. Perhaps the best way For us to learn from Habakkuk is to use his own words and make them our own, to take his promise to act in the future and to say as he does. Even though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, even though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, even though I have to deal with a difficult boss and struggle with financial difficulties, even if my marriage is falling apart and my kids are difficult to control, even though my company is considering layoffs and my health is threatened by COVID-19, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Amen.